these are challenging times as we navigate our way through through a global pandemic. However, I do believe uh, 2021 holds a, a brighter future. Uh, the vaccine rollout has begun. Uh, governments are providing stimulus across our local economies. And with that, I, I do believe consumer and business confidence uh, will return. Uh, at Investec, we can continue to provide support to our clients across our advisory, lending, equity, placement, wealth, and, and hedging businesses. Um, Investec has also partnered with governments on, on various pandemic funding initiatives across South Africa, uh, the UK, and Ireland, uh, all there to help businesses and, and support the economy. So, looking back on energy markets for uh, 2020, it was really an extraordinary year. Uh, Brent crude oil trade uh, traded at its lowest level since the late 90s. We saw US crude trade at negative prices, oil demand collapsed, global storage at one point looked like it was filling to capacity, uh, while gas prices some, um, faced similar challenges as the oil market did. So I think we'd all like to know what lies ahead for, for 2021. I myself am I'm looking forward to hearing from Callum and, and, and Nathan on their thoughts and views on the sector. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand over to, to Callum now, who's going to take us through in a little bit more detail as to some of the events that unfolded in uh, 2020, while focusing on some of the drivers of supply and demand uh, and OPEC policy and what lies ahead for 2021. Um, we'd also welcome any questions you may have uh, as well. Uh, any questions can be typed into the, the Q&A field that you, you see on the right-hand uh, side of your display screen. So. So with that, uh, we can put the questions to the presenters at the end. Uh, and with that, I'll hand over to Callum. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks very much, Alan, for that, that, that introduction. Um, yeah, first slide, please. Um, and, and the next slide, please. Thank you very much, that one. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's good uh, to, to start off by just recapping quickly on some of the, the key uh, events last year. Um, here we have a, a, a price chart of, of Brent, um, and as you can see, the market really started to react to the COVID crisis in in March, uh, particularly after OPEC, uh, at their meeting at the start of that month, failed to reach an agreement on how to deal with uh, the, the impending uh, collapse in demand. Uh, and in particular, after that, Saudi and uh, Arabia and, and Russia uh, both increased production. Um, they did come back to the negotiating table a few weeks later and agreed on a, on a massive uh, package of supply cuts along, along with Russia and, and, and others. Um, but that was only due to come into force in May. So in the meantime, um, inventories increased uh, and the price collapsed. And, uh, and that's, of course, when we saw Brent's down at $16 per barrel. And uh, infamously, the uh, the U.S. crude future reached a low of minus $40 per barrel. Um, but the the cuts, when they did come into force, were were effective. They they combined with uh, demand starting to improve over the summer, and so the market actually initially inventory stabilised, and then um, the market went into a deficit, and inventory started to draw down again. The market had a wobble. Uh, later in the year, uh, when the virus started to spread again and lockdown started to be reintroduced. Uh, but then, of course, as we know, the, the vaccine started to, to come on, on stream or, the, or the, the completed their clinical trials with positive results, and the market end started to rally 
uh, from then onwards, uh, breaking 50 towards the end of the year. And that rally was underlined by a good OPEC meeting at the start of this year. And of course, um, uh, Saudi Arabia is deciding to go the extra mile with with an additional million uh, barrels per day cut, which uh, came into the force at the start start of this month. Um, So turning to 2021, the question now really is uh, whether the rollout of, of the vaccines can uh, get ahead of the spread of the virus and whether they, they, the vaccines will remain effective against variants and, and, and further mutations that may may uh, that, that, that will may arise in the future. And of course, nobody knows the answer to that question. So inevitably, in looking at what the market may do over the course of this year, we need to be thinking in terms of um, of, of di- different scenarios and the range of possibilities for the market. Uh, next slide, please. Now, in order to do that, it's helpful to look at the breakdown of supply and demand and see which of the key areas we need to be focusing on. Now, if we look at uh, demand, which is this pie chart on the left, you can see that roughly half of uh, oil consumption is actually down to road transportation, uh, passenger and uh, and freight. Um, we have another quarter, which which is from um, industry, including petrochemicals, producing plastics and things like that for finished goods. And then we have another quarter of um, other bits and pieces, which uh, includes aviation. And, and interesting, interestingly, although aviation is the industry which uh, people most first think about when they uh, c- consider um, the, the effect of COVID, it actually only accounts for 8% of, of global demands. It's not actually that significant. Um, looking at the supply side, um, you see that uh, roughly two-thirds of supply comes from three different entities, the US, Russia, and and OPEC. And of course, because OPEC and Russia, as, as well as a few other countries like Mexico, which fall into the other that green uh, slice there, um, t- together they make up pretty much half of, of uh, world production uh, in, in terms of what what we call OPEC plus um, and, and it, it's because of that that, that, it, that it's important to c- consider quite quite carefully what what OPEC and its uh, its associates are up to and how that might that might influence the market um, ne- next slide please so thinking about uh, about 2021 it's useful just to have a, a little bit of a recap of, of what uh, went on in terms of the supply-demand balance over 2020. Now, the grey area on this uh, chart uh, shows the difference in average production in 2029, and sorry, average demand in 2029, and and demand in each month of this year. Uh, and this this is negative because it has a, a negative effect on these supply-demand balance. Uh, the, the supply change, on the other hand, has, has, a, has a positive impact. And what, what we can see here is that uh, d- demand uh, reacted much more quickly. Uh, as we've just talked about, OPEC uh, were, were, were late in uh, coming to grips with the situation. Um, but uh, and, and consequently, the, the purple line, which is uh, the level of inventory, increased very dramatically. Um, but um, as the year progressed, d- demand uh, started to recover, and the cuts came into force. And the cuts 
were more persistent and 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 so gradually so over the summer the inventories kind of kind of stabilized and then and then fell off uh, significantly into the end of the year and it's also notable that um even though later in this in in 2020 um, lockdowns and so on started to be introduced again as as the virus spread in the northern hemisphere winter that demand continued to to increase and and although a lot of that was of course, driven by by Asia and China, where the uh, uh, the uh, virus has, has been in much better control than it has in, in Europe and the US. Um, nevertheless, I think it does show that economies have found ways to uh, keep going, even though they have lockdowns, uh, and so demand has not been impacted by uh, lockdowns uh, over 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 this this current winter in the way that it was um, early in 2020. Um, the, the other thing to note on here is, is the green line, which is the, the um, five-year average of OECD commercial inventory, and, and, that, and that's important for OPEC because they, they, do, they, they, they do tend to target, rather than the price of oil, um, the level of inventories, and they, they generally like to see inventories down below or, or around the, the level of, uh, of, of that average, which you can see is, is about... Uh, 2.95 billion barrels or something like that. Thanks. Next slide, please. So that, 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 now we can move on to the, the scenarios. Um, and what we've done here is we've taken the forecasts of the US Energy Information Administration uh, to use as a base case, and then we've applied some um, adjustments for um, the different demand scenarios and looked at um, OPEX actions and what they may need to do over the rest of the year to achieve uh, certain inventory targets. So, so the first scenario is really just the base case with uh, the, uh, and, and assumes that OPEC um, put back in the, the the production that they've adjusted for over the uh, uh, over the first quarter and also that Saudi Arabia unwind their additional cuts. Uh, and you can see in in the upper chart which covers OPEC output, the, the, the blue line, so indicating that OPEC production jumps uh, in April and is maintained through the rest of this, this year. And the consequence of that in, in the lower chart is that inventory uh, drops dramatically and goes way below the uh, 2.9 uh, or so uh, billion barrels that, that is the five-year average. So OPEC would not want inventory to uh, draw down that far, I think. Um, in the second scenario, um, we, we've assumed that, that OPEC are, are targeting a 2.9 billion uh, inventory level, uh, and that, you can see that uh, in, in the grey line. Uh, and in that case, OPEC are able to actually start increasing output um, in the second half of the year. Now, scenario three, uh, which is the green line, uh, models a softer demand scenario for the US and Europe over, over the start of this year. Um, and, and that leads to a, a slight uptick uh, in, in inventories in, in, the, in the coming months. But, um, but really only in terms of what OPEC then need to do, it, it just del delays a little bit the, um, the, the path for increasing production later in the year. Um, if we if we uh, model quite a significant demand shock where Chinese demand is impacted as well, so this is if there's a resurgence in the, 
in the virus um, globally, then and that, this is the, the purple lines, then you can see on the lower chart we get quite a significant build in inventories. Um, but, but again, even there, OPEC is able to, although it's, it needs to maintain its probably its level of cuts uh, a little bit longer than it might like to, it can still uh, gradually increase output through the remainder of the year. Um, the, the other possibility, of course, is that the vaccine rollout is, is actually does proceed very quickly uh, and, and that uh, um, that enables demand to, to, to recover uh, more quickly than might, might be expected. Um, and essentially here we're modeling a return to 2019 levels of demand um, from about May. Um, and, and in that case, OPEC is able to increase production actually very quickly, um, much more quickly than it's currently indicated it's going to do. So, so I, th I think uh, in summary, what this seems to show is that the, the action that uh, OPEC has, has taken um, thus far um, and, and what, what it's signaling at the moment that it's going to do over the next few months um, already prepares the market for uh, a softening uh, in, in demand, um, and and even with a more significant demand sh uh, demand shock, um, it, it it doesn't necessarily need to change its path um, very significantly. Um, on, on the other hand, of course, um, demand could surprise on the upside. So the market, so so overall, that OPEC does seem to have uh, uh, have, have put in place measures which. Uh, should be effective at least in, in, in coping with inventories and, and a demand shock in the, in, the, in, the, in the short term. But of course, OPEC is not the, as important as it is, 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 is not the only part of the puzzle. Um, the behavior of commercial producers is also extremely important. And uh, so I'll now hand over to Nathan to talk about that. Thank you. Thanks, Callum. And uh, good morning, everyone. If we could have the next slide, please. Yeah, so, so thanks again. So when we think about the oil market, uh, we can analyze supply much more easily than demand due to better and more timely disclosure. And in that context, it's interesting to see how investment in new supply has progressed. It's also worth remembering that oil fields are declining assets. So ongoing investment is needed to maintain global production capacity. And we can see in the slide that following the outbreak of COVID, the subsequent collapse in the oil price uh, meant that companies have made dramatic cuts to investment plans with over $500 billion of planned spending over the next five years lost. This is through a combination of deferred major long cycle projects and potentially indefinitely and sharp reductions in exploiting shale plays in the US. The consequence of relative underinvestment today may not impact supply through 2021, but has significant implications medium term. Within a market of around 100 million barrels, there's relatively limited spare capacity, which Callum has touched on. Now, OPEC accounts for most of this, and as the 2020 OPEC cuts unwind through this year, it returns to a more normalized 4 million barrels a day of spare capacity, and this sits mostly with Saudi Arabia. We expect production declines offshore to continue as the industry moves away from investing in these long cycle projects. And this accounts for around 25% of global production. So if demand recovers faster than expected, there isn't significant extra supply available to react. And also spending plans remain tight. The relative recovery of the oil price has only just reached 
the long-term oil company planning assumption of around $50 a barrel, and perhaps more significantly, the long-term oil price assumption used by lenders. So through 2021, demand may not return exactly as we, as we expect, but fundamentally, there's underinvestment in supply that has oil price implications for next year and beyond. The next slide, please. So prior to, to COVID, uh, the biggest disruption to the oil price came from increased from 5 million barrels a day 10 years ago to a record, record of almost 13 million barrels at the end of 2019, with shale accounting for over 7% of it. Historically, the country was the biggest importer of oil, with over 10 million barrels imported in 2005. And this position, following the onset of shale production growth, has transformed, with the US becoming a, net, a small net exporter of oil over the past couple of years. So when the US was able to achieve so the U.S. was able to achieve its aim of energy independence through the growth of U.S. shale. However, this boost in production was driven by an almost uninterrupted flow of equity and debt funding, with production growth rewarded ahead of any concerns around cash flow or shareholder returns. This approach left shale-focused comp oil companies and service companies exposed to any oil price weakness, with banks and investors now cautious around supporting these companies. There may have been more bankruptcies in the oil price weakness in 2016, but in 2020, the average amount of debt associated with each company almost doubled to $1 billion. So the combined debts of EMP and service companies declaring bankruptcy over, the, over last year was over $100 billion. So the recovery in the oil price should slow this process and the business models of publicly listed EMPs have shifted to cash flow and not unlimited production growth. Indeed, public companies are now committing to reinvestment caps that are a percentage of cash flow. This more prudent approach ensures funds are available for debt reduction and even dividends, abandoning growth for growth's sake. It's also illustrated in the US rig count in the chart. From over 800 um, rigs at the, start, at the end of 2019 to a low in mid-2020s, uh, with a recent recovery as all prices improved, so production may begin to recover from the lows of 2020. I believe, and I guess this is crucial really, that the potential for US shale production to significantly surprise the upside has passed. And this is exacerbated by President Biden and his drilling ban on federal lands, and also the cost of production likely to increase as methane leakage prevention measures are implemented. Indeed, major oil service companies like Halliburton and Baker Hughes both point to a slow recovery in demand for their services. In the, in the next couple of years. Talent by Middle East, Brazil, and Russia, not US unconventionals. Next slide, please. Next slide, thanks. Um, okay. So, when we think about the equity performance, it's been the, a roller coaster ride, a roller coaster ride for equity investors. So, as the drop in oil prices led to historic, and these um, oil price drops led to historic dividend cuts, and in some cases, cases coincided with transitions from oil and gas companies into energy companies with greater investment in new energy projects. Indeed, as the companies post Q4 results, they are characterized by record losses and tightening budgets. As the chart shows, the oil price fell further but recovered faster than oil equities. And based on our discussions with investors, the se sector remains underowned, although interest is picking up from an admittedly low base. So there is a potential for a re-rating of stocks as confidence in the oil price and sector interest increases. We expect companies to keep spending tight, reduce exploration budgets with write-downs of longer-term projects expected to continue. 
We also anticipate further divestment of legacy assets, such as in the North Sea, to focus portfolios, reduce costs and pay down debt. Interestingly, rather than other public companies, it is mainly private equity players that are the buyers of these legacy positions. This is particularly the case in the UK, Norwegian North Sea, where over $10 of deals were completed in the past four or five years. Indeed, the long-awaited transition of some of these private companies onto public markets has started with a reverse takeover of London-listed Premier Oil by Harbour Energy. And this is expected to complete in the second half of this year. This will create the first senior EMP on the LSE since the acquisition of BG by Shell in 2015. The share price performance relative to, and the share price performance will be um, watched closely relative to higher rated Norwegian peers. However, current public markets remain uh, value, public market valuations remain low with little incentive for PE players to list their investments, switching to dividends to generate returns, particularly as oil prices improve and cash flows, flows surge. We expect diversification by these uh, the, the majors into low carbon energy to accelerate through 2021, with European majors leading the world. This follows high profile the space. This will be held by COP26 and the Biden administration. Their US equivalents seem more reluctant to move in that direction. However, investment in the hot renewable sector from the lower valued oil and gas sector could lead to mismatches in expectations around shareholder returns. And although, although disparities in valuations might be helped by improving oil prices. Next slide, please. So as we look into 2021, we assume, assume demand begins to recover toward 2019 levels by next year and inventory levels return towards normal through the summer. The outlook then appears to be more constructive for improving oil prices over the next 12 to 18 months. We anticipate this will be more of a grind than a jump, as setbacks, potential setbacks around vaccinations and potential for further lockdowns could slow demand growth. Also, if we learn anything from last year, 2021 will no doubt provide surprises that we cannot anticipate yet. However, as oil remains a declining asset and without investment in new supply, there is a potential for the market to tighten medium term. Indeed, a number of forecasters are predicting prices could reach $65 to $70 a barrel by next year, albeit we are remaining more cautious at $55 at the moment. The move to increase energy efficiency, usage of EVs, greater adoption of renewables combined with hydrogen and battery storage is welcome, but it's unlikely to have the scale in the next few years to impact demand. And with the many emerging economies looking to emulate the lifestyles of OECD countries, we anticipate oil demand will continue to grow medium term, albeit slowly. This is underlined by the post-COVID global GDP growth outlook from the IMF and others, which remains strong at 4 to 5%. I might be getting overexcited, but it is worth considering that prior to the explosion of US shale over the past five years, next slide, please. and handing over to Alan to take some Q&A, it's worth reflecting briefly on gas prices. Looking closer to home, at the start of 2020, UK European gas prices were already impacted by record gas storage rates in anticipation of Russian supply disruptions that didn't happen in a mild winter. This was before the demand disruption from COVID that was exacerbated by UNG, previously destined for Asia, being dumped into the market in Q2, with UK gas prices reaching their lowest level in 10 years. However, as the Asian economy's economic activity returned towards normality in the second half of last year, gas demand and therefore LNG demand returned. This pushed up prices in Asia 
and dramatic, uh, leading to dramatically pr big price increases. Uh, and therefore, the pr gas prices in uh, Europe and the UK also responded, particularly into the currently, currently cold winter. Now, Callum and I have tried to canter through the key issues from 2020 and look to see how they may play out through 2021. I hope you find this useful. I'll now hand over to Alan to find out if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank, thanks very much, uh, Callum and Nathan. It's, 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 it's a great update. It's, it's, it's great to get your views on what's kind of what's supporting the market. Um, you know, just at the start of 2021, just, uh, you know, my kind of takeaways from that is kind of, well, one, it's hard to believe there was a supply deficit as we came into the second half of uh, 2020. Um, it really looks like, um, you know, OPEX compliance uh, with, with the supply uh, you know, has really stabilised uh, the imbalances that we've seen in the markets. Um, under under investment as well, Nathan, it seems to be really supporting the the, the, the price in some way, uh, and certainly over the near term. Um, and again, yeah, it's a question I suppose that's going to be on everyone's mind is is as oil prices rise, will you know how quickly will will shale oil uh, you know return uh, and investment go into that sector. Uh, as you're kind of pointing, it seems to be underinvested, and it may be a little bit slower to return in uh, 2021. Um, for those who have any questions, uh, please feel free to type them into the the, the, the Q and A field, and we can put them to the panelists. Uh, it's on the right hand side of your screen. We we had a number of questions coming in actually uh, throughout the presentation, which I'll put to the Callum and Nathan now. Um, so uh, this is this this could be answered by both cap, uh, panelists. Uh, Nathan, I put it to you first. Uh, uh, we've seen recent quarter four results uh, you know, released from the, the major oil companies like BP, Chevron. Uh, they've been coming in, you know, a lot weaker um, um, than, than analysts had expected. Um, what are we seeing investors do uh, in, in oil and, and the gas market at the moment? Well, uh, you know, certainly over my career, I haven't seen investor levels uh, interest of, from investors as low as it is at the moment. And I think that's you know a combination of the share price performance of a lot of the companies, and also a greater emphasis on ESG and, and um, that type of investments. It's um, strong performance from other sectors, particularly the tech sector. So I think that the interest in oil companies it's also incumbent on the companies, whether it's majors or or EMPs. And to deliver, and whether that's through dividends, but they've cut those recent, or, or through delivery of. Um, so I, I think it's really incumbent on the companies to deliver, uh, and if they deliver, I think the shareholder uh, interest will will return, and it's already picking up now that the oil price is beginning to improve. I think people just need to be convinced that this uh, improving oil price is, is here to stay, uh, set against um, discussions around. Um, you know, peak demand and things like that. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out over the next couple of years. But I guess the, the opportunity here is in an under-owned sector, if there is any interest, then the share price performance could outperform, could, could be squeezed as more people try to get back into the space. Very good. And uh, Callum, just uh, even from a futures point of view, we, we saw some pretty strange things happening within the futures market uh, in 2020, certainly on the... Um, on, on, on US crude, um, can you can you tell us a little bit what we're seeing from the investor side uh, in, in oil markets? Yeah, we, we get some quite transparent information about the behaviour of uh, speculative investors in the 
in the futures market and 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 it's quite interesting because uh, we've seen a rather divergence of behavior in the in the in, on us futures versus versus on brent um, speculative bullish interest in in us futures market uh, increased quite markedly um, over the summer uh, and then kind of leveled off whereas in in brent um, the the interest from from people to take positive views on, on oil was quite subdued and, until towards the end of the year when that increased uh, significantly and consequently we saw a, an increase in the premium of uh, Brent over, over the US crude future uh, WTI. Um, I think the other interesting thing is that the investors uh, typically invest at the, at the front end of the curves so that tends to t- tends to push that up quite strongly uh, and so we're in the quite odd situation really where we've got very high inventories um we've got um the, the prospect of demand recovering you know later in later in the year and all the things that nathan mentioned about uh, c- constraints on uh, c- commercial producers and and, and yet the, the front contract is trading at 58 uh, and, the, and the back end of the curve, so d- December 2022 contract is, is trading at 53 uh, uh, dollars per barrel. So the, the, the forward curve saying the market's going to go down. And I think this is to quite a large extent a structural thing because you've got investors coming in at the front end of the curve, um, but we don't have quite the strong bid that we might have had, uh, for example, from the airlines at the back end of the curve, which, which might have helped to normalize the situation. Yeah, and it kind of leads on to another question that's come in, Callum. Um, you know, given, given as you mentioned, the airlines, given the losses that airlines have faced, um, you know, both themselves within their operating models, but on, on, on fuel hedges as well, you know, do, do we expect to see any material change in their hedging policy? Um, well, I, th- I think that there's a short and a long-term um, answer to that. In the, in, in the short term, of course, it's still very uncertain what... Uh, what 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 is going to happen in, in in how how quickly vaccines will help to you know end travel restrictions and and, and that sort of thing so certainly at at, at the moment about uh, adding hedging um, certainly in, into this summer um, uh, and although you know what one way of addressing that of course would be to, to, to buy options rather than to trade swaps which is typically what airlines have done in, in the past is at least then if you if you discover that you're not going to burn as much as you've hedged at least you don't have to pay out if the market goes down and and, and of course the that that, that the scenarios are correlated because if if uh, restrictions are in, increased and and or the uh, and and uh, because uh, because the, the virus is spreading um, then you're going to see the price going down as well. So that, that's that, that's a particular problem. Um, but nevertheless, options are expensive. You, know, you might pay 10% premium or something like that to, to 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 buy options. So that's that's not a that's not a particularly attractive uh, thing either. So this is a sort of dilemma that the airlines are facing at the moment. And of course, there is also there is the other risk that prices do increase significantly and and they return to flying, and then they have higher oil price to contend with. Um, I think there's also a longer-term question uh, about how, what what this means and what lessons should be learned from it. I mean, should should it be that more generally airlines should uh, not hedge as much, or perhaps uh, uh, do more hedging with with just by buying options rather than uh, and less on swaps? 
Uh, and I suppose there you have to take a view about how often you think these kinds of things, these kind of events are going to come around. I mean, if they really are once every hundred years, um, maybe it's it's not worth buying options. Um, but, but of course, you know, we have had other instances like the volca volcanoes a few, few years ago and things like that volcanic ash so you know these things do, do do come around so i think that's the longer term sort of philosophical debate yeah no i think i think you're right listen certainly what we've seen over you know the last uh, number of years is 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 you know that the, the cost of options has been a barrier for, for certain airlines to enter into certain airlines will will adjust uh, their policies in some way um but you know we've been through the you know an oil crash in 2008 you know, from 150 to 30 dollars a barrel, we've seen a crash again in 2014, and you know, some our airlines readjusted policy slightly, but overall, you know, they tended to come back to to, to, to similar type hedging policies. Um, Nathan, uh, a question that's come in is: uh, Has the shift uh, to ESG permanently impaired the relationship between the oil price and oil stocks? I, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. I think it'll be a very interesting 2021 um, to improve back down to what these stocks can deliver. So if if oil stocks can deliver outsized returns, then I'm not saying that people will um, remove their issues around ESG, but that will at least create a, a, an opportunity that people might want to get involved with. I think it's also fair to say that all of the oil companies or oil and gas companies that, that I talk to uh, are making significant changes to play into the ESG agenda. So the development of carbon capture and underground storage, the um, move to drive down emissions, these things are all, all um, activities that these oil companies are, are doing right now. of oil, oil and gas companies being the problem rather than the solution, I, I think is going away. Still need this oil to be produced. And the question is whether you want that oil to be produced by public companies, which which face all the scrutiny that of public com, public companies get, or whether you'd rather that rather oil was produced in Russia or Saudi Arabia or other places where their focus on ESG isn't quite the same. So I think you can align uh, ESG with the direction that oil companies are taking themselves. But I think fundamentally, shareholders want to make money. And I think the oil sector has not been very good for that over the past couple of years. But into 2021 and beyond, with a stronger commodity, uh, focus on cost reduction, uh, then I do think that the, um, the interest in the stocks will increase. But, you know, ESG is an, is an ongoing challenge and, and it's the right thing to do. I mean, we're, nobody is against many of the things that are associated with, with ESG. I just think fundamentally... Um, the planet uh, demands 100 million barrels a day, and, and, in, and in order to, and unless that's going to change overnight, which it, which it, which it won't, um, you know, that oil needs to be produced. And I think it's probably better to be produced by public companies than it is by uh, national oil companies where we don't know exactly what's going on. Um, and, and, and another question for you, Nathan, that's come in is uh, how much lower are the returns in renewable projects compared to your more traditional oil type projects? Well, well, they're different. I mean, renewable projects are essentially infrastructure utility style projects. So the returns from them are, are less than less than 10 percent. I mean, there'll be ones that are better and ones that are, are worse. But and, and also also if you're trying to buy into these projects, it's a hot sector. It's, it's, it's like hot property. Any, any sort of property boom, uh, you have to pay up for these projects. 
So in order to pay up, if you either pay up up front or just fundamentally these are utility style returns, you won't make as much money, but it's much more consistent from renewables than you would do with um, an oil project. Uh, where if oil prices surge, as we expect, you'd expect returns in the, the 20 or, or 30 percent. And, and even some of the best projects can do better than that. So it's, it's you know, there, there are different things. But I guess fundamentally, if you want the project execution of oil companies to be more focused on renewables, then the companies have to do that. I guess the consequence, though, is um, is around dividends and, and what what, you know, medium term, what um rate of dividend that, that sort of investment can sustain. And I think that time only time will tell. But I guess it's worth pointing out that fundamentally oil and gas projects have got higher rates of return than renewables ones, but they've also got higher emissions. So that, that plays out in a different way. Yeah, no, um, we're, even, we're even seeing it with, uh, you know, BP share price as well. You know, it's it, it, it suffered quite a bit, certainly since February, since, you know, they, they've, they've announced that they they want to become carbon neutral by by 2050 and, and equally you know they're stating that you know they're going to see lower returns um with respect to to downstream european oil refining uh, do you have a view on refining margins and the impact for smaller players well refining is always a, a difficult business to make money and particularly in the oil prices is moving around so fast and i would have thought that the demand uh, well the, the demand for products in europe generally it continues to decline. I think obviously at, at this particular moment, it, it's very, very difficult. So I think refining is a really tough place to be in at the best of times. And I think these are not those. So I uh, would expect margins to continue to be very tight. Um, a question in for, 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 for Callum. Um, the, the shape of the oil curve, uh, you know, listen, it's constantly changing. Um, can you give us some insights into, you know, why the oil curve is so steep at the moment? Um, you know, is it driven by investors? Um, you know, well, it, the, the, the oil curve is downward sloping at the moment. Um, oh, sorry, that's right. Sorry. Um, that, that's, that's fine. Um, which you know, I, I sort of hint, hint, touched on this briefly um, a, a little earlier. But yeah, I, th I think that this, this is a typical uh, sort of feature of the market that um, when when investors get bullish, they always pile into the front end of the curve because that's the that's the uh, that's the most liquid part, um, forcing that up. But you know, you then have to think, well, what's what's going to force the back end up of the curve up? Um, who who is going to be actively buying buying further down the curve? And and if if the investors aren't doing that, and the consumers, I mean, airlines are one of the big sources of consumer buying down the back end of the curve. If if they're not buying. Then of course the, the back end of the curve can end up lagging behind, and, and that I think that's that's what we're seeing. Okay. Um, how uh, for the question for Nathan? Um, how how do you see the cost of capital for oil and gas companies changing over the next five years? Uh, well, I think it depends where you are. So I guess what we tried to talk about was um, the outlook for shale, and I think those that the outlook for that type of project uh, is, is going to be difficult to get access to capital. And I also think that the, you know, the, the general cost of capital has come down for the oil and gas sector like it has for, for everywhere else. But I think the scrutiny on what you're going to use the money for is, is probably more significant. And in fact, we are seeing some banks offering um, lower rates or lower cost of capital 
if you can demonstrate the, um, the, the that you're investing in low emissions or you're investing in gas or or, or what have you. So I, I think think I guess the point around the cost of capital is is there money still out there for oil and gas investment? The answer is yes uh, from lenders, but it's a smaller group that want to be involved with it. And I think also it's uh, there's more scrutiny around the the, the ESG agenda and, and what the projects will deliver. But I think you know I guess it. it maybe points to another source of constraint to add more supply to the market. Now, if, uh, if people are right that we've hit a peak of demand and demand's gonna fall, um, fall fast, that, that might be the right thing to do. I guess what we're trying to mention this morning is that if you don't invest in supply, that also has a, a, you know, a, a, a similar, has a consequence where if demand doesn't decline, um, that there's gonna be a bit of a crunch. So the cost of capital for oil companies is not particularly high. There are incentives in place if you if you can point to um, emissions reductions and, and doing things the right way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the cost of capital is not that high, but I just think the number of banks that want to play in the space is lower, particularly in the US where a lot of them were burned uh, by the bankruptcies that I mentioned earlier. Do, do, do you think that we'll see, um, you know, some more consolid or consolidation in the oil sector, even with the even with the big majors? Uh, maybe improve returns is to reduce costs and you can reduce costs by by mergers and we've seen particularly in the shale plays we've seen lots of um, uh, all share mergers uh, to re remove one uh, one management team uh, and improve the portfolio high grade the portfolio i think there's a potential for that but again you have to have i mean this is maybe a, a general equities issue or publicly listed market issue is you're having turkeys having to vote for christmas you've got to have management teams that are prepared to give up their jobs uh, in order for these mergers to happen. So I think at the, when they, at the absolute depths of the oil price, there was probably more incentive there to, to have these mega mergers. I think now we're going to see the oil companies actually divest more of their assets rather than do uh, further acquisitions. And that's where the role of private equity is very interesting. Uh, we continue to see you know, multi-billion dollar investments from private equity. And some private equity houses actually raise more money to invest more into upstream. I mean, they can take a, a slightly longer term view um, you know, three to five year, perhaps longer term view, which might hint that they, we, they are expecting oil prices to recover uh, and improve in, in the medium term. So I, I don't think we'll see mega mergers, but I think we'll see more consolidation amongst the smaller players. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, and Callum, um, with oil prices rising now, you know, we, we see Brent trading over 58 on the, on the front contract today. Uh, WGTI is, is trading 55. Um, do you think that we'll see a surge or potentials? We could see a potential surge in, in, in shale over, over the near term, or, or what would your views be? We seem to be back up at levels where you know, these prices make sense. Well, there, haven't been, there hasn't been much, any sign of it, um, any sign of that hap happening thus, thus far. Uh, I, I mean, U US shale output has been kept going using a, a backlog of uh, wells that had already been drilled um, but had not been put into production so the, 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 and, and, and Nathan's talked about how you know um, production is a declining asset and that's particularly the case with US shale I mean it probably loses about two-thirds of its output from a from a new well over the course of a year or some, something like that so it's a very very rapid decline rate so you have to keep put, constantly putting more wells into production just to maintain a particular level of production, never mind about increasing it. Uh, and, and just maintaining it has been done, as I say, by, by bringing these wells that have already been drilled back into production. So the question is, um, 
what what level would it make sense to start drilling fresh wells? Um, and we haven't seen any real sign of that happening. There has been a bit more drilling activity, um, but n not not a great deal. We're n nothing like back to the, the pre-COVID levels. So so far, we, we see really no sign of, of, of US uh, shale activity increasing. And if I may continue, that's probably the sharpest end wedge, if you like. And the, the, these are, um, you know, wells that don't last very long. There's issues around methane leakage. You know, fracking is, is seen as a, as a something that is not acceptable anymore. And we've seen through the Biden administration quite an active um, approach to the, to the onshore oil sector. We'll see how it plays out over time. I mean, banning drilling on federal lands is all very well. But that only accounts for about 9% of, of US production. So it, the, the direct impact may, may not be that significant in the short term. But fundamentally, investors are not impressed with the returns they've got from shale plays, and banks are not impressed with people going bankrupt. So I think that the ability for that sector to access limitless money, which was the case uh, a few years back, that's, that's ended. So, so shale is not going to be a big surprise. It's going to do what it's going to do. They'll drill the best acreage, they'll make some returns and generate the cash flow we talked about. But uh, I, I don't see shale um, uh, pr providing the, 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 the exponential growth that it did over the past few years. No, and, it, you know, it, it's, it certainly seems to be, you know, supporting prices as well This in, 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 in the short term here. Um, Nathan, you mentioned there's a shortfall of about $500 billion of investment to, um, in, in upstream projects. Is, is this solely commercial production or does it include OPEC? It's a question. Oil and gas space. This is $500 billion of, of projects that were coming up for FID, for final investment decisions, which either public or, or national oil companies have deferred because the oil price wouldn't sustain it. Now, I think as more pressure and as uh, majors change their business models, I guess it's a bit more obvious that they're not going to take on some of these major projects because it's through their public disclosures. But it's also not clear that until OPEC and others start making the well, the members of OPEC start making the returns that they need to fund their social programs, that you'll see major projects um, taking place. I mean, a lot of the OFS companies are not winning new contracts because they, they, they don't exist for major projects across the, the majors and and the uh, NOCs, the national oil companies themselves. So that's a, that's five hundred million dollars across the board. What what are the risks of uh, seeing a um, some some form of a kind of supply crunch? That if you know if we do see you know quite a quick uptick in demand. Uh, you're saying if the underinvestment is there, it's there to support prices. You know, could could we see, you know, a, a spike in prices? Well, I think that's what we're trying to hint at. Perhaps not very subtly. Mm -hmm. yeah. that it, it may not be this year, um, but but people aren't investing in supply and yeah. the production of mining. So if you don't invest in supply, there'll be less and less, and so that kind of plays into the the question mark around demand. Now, are we moving into a world where oil demand is going to decline? Uh, or are we moving into a world where it, it's it, rather than energy transition, it's energy addition. So all the extra energy being generated by renewables and other sources will be added into the growing demand for energy across the planet as GDP growth uh, continues. So I, I guess what we're saying is if demand doesn't decline and the supply has not been invested in, that should be positive for oil, for stronger oil prices in the in the next few years. And and would we would would you have a similar outlook as well for gas prices, uh, Nathan? Uh, well, ga ga gas isn't gas isn't a commodity like oil, so you can't get it at the same price everywhere. 
But I think what we're what we're pointing out here is that in Asia, domestic production across Asia sort of generally is declining and does not and is does not meet current demand. So we'd expect gas prices into Asia to to be to be remain to be strong, uh, although there are more sources of LNG coming onto the market. So yeah, the outlook for gas remains remains strong. I think in in the, at the moment. I think the other thing to consider from a shale point of view, sorry to keep banging on about shale, but as um, uh, shale product, oil shale production declines, so does the associated gas from uh, from shale. So you're seeing stronger uh, gas prices in the US, um, also leading, you know, pushing prices up acro across across the world. So the outlook for gas remains strong, uh, particularly as in this uh, cold winter that we're all enduring. Um. Oh, thanks very much for that, Nathan. Uh, Callum, can I bring bring you in on this as well? Um, just more specific to the aviation um, industry that you know we're seeing a lot of the refiners and suppliers moving away from jet production. You know, if we see again, you know, demand returning fast. Um, in you know, for for airline travel, um, you know, will refiners be able to keep up? Is there a potential squeeze on on jet prices higher? Well, I, I think there's certainly the potential for, for for jet prices to increase relative to to crude oil, you know, from their current still relatively low levels. But I suppose your question is really, has something been done to to, to refineries that means that 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 uh, that they won't fundamentally will will not be able to cope with an increase in jet demand and and jet prices blow out massively compared to. Compared to oil, I think that's that's the crux of the of, of the question. Um, I mean, certainly because we, we've talked a lot about what what happened on the demand side in in 2020, but we've not talked about the breakdown of that into different different refined products. And of course, historically, uh, you know, t typically, um, jet is one of the most prized things coming out out of the barrel, and a lot of refinery capacity has been built around uh, producing. Um, a lot of the more sophisticated uh, refineries that have been built in Asia and Middle East uh, in, in recent years have been designed around being able to produce the so-called middle distillates, uh, jet, jet fuel and diesel particularly, and to be able to do that from um, using low-grade crude, which, which is high in things like fuel oil, or even to, to use fuel oil and to, to have a process of cracking that to produce these um, these high-grade middle middle distillates, um, but that, that strategy, of course, was thrown into confusion last year precisely because of this uh, the, the the particular drop in in jet fuel demand. But really, what refiners have been doing because it, it really at some points became a waste product. And so, what do you what do we do with all this jet? Because it, it it just keeps coming out when you put oil in, and you need some level of oil even if you've even if you've cut down your overall production. Um, and 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 so that they they just started to blend that with with diesel in in order to try and try and do something with it um, and, and and other products. So so I th I think that the, the point is that the, the the capacity in the refineries is is basically there, uh, and and so my my expectation would be that they'd be able to um, just uh, that they would be able to meet that demand essentially by just going back to doing what they were doing before. Okay. No, thanks very much for that, Callum. I'm, I'm conscious as well. We're running towards near uh, end of time. Um, just one last question. Uh, I can put to to to, to both the the panelists. Uh, um, you know, do do you believe that we've seen peak oil demand? Um, you know, it's something that's uh, been written about quite a lot uh, recently. Um, 
Callum, do you have any any views on this? Um, I, I I honestly don't don't know, <laughs> um, but I I think the important thing is not so much you know we d- demand in, in twenty nineteen was a hundred million barrels per, per per day roughly yeah. so I think I think the question of whether it whether in the future we we exceed a hundred million barrels per day and get to you know one hundred two or one hundred three or something like that isn't isn't really isn't really the the, the question it's 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 the general path of um, oil, oil demand in in the years ahead, and I th- I think there has been a a, a change. You know, whether or not it's justified, but I think there certainly has been a a, a dramatic change in in uh, the, the the view that analysts and people have have taken about this, and we we now see see you know, even the oil companies like BP um, forecasting that actually d- demand could uh, decline uh, significantly in the years ahead. Thanks, Callum. Well, you know, uh, even if it even if it increases back up you yeah. know, later this year and next year. And uh, Nathan, uh, I guess I've got a shorter answer than Callum. No, I don't think we've hit uh, peak <laughs> okay. peak oil demand. Certainly not in the short term. I mean, I, I do hope over the next uh, 10, 20 years. But I think it's going to take quite a long time for people to switch their habits and for the infrastructure to be in place across the planet, not just not just in Europe and the US, to, to implement um, a, a bigger shift towards uh, power generation and electricity rather than using oil as a, as a, a key component of lots of parts of the, the global industrial landscape, I guess. So no in the short term. <laughs> Agreed. Well, listen, uh, just with that, I think we, we you know, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for, for attending today. Uh, in particular, listen, I'd like to thank Callum uh, McPherson and Nathan Piper for their views. I think they've given us some great insights into what's stabilising the market, uh, certainly at the moment, and what lies ahead. Um, you know, it's, um, so, uh, you know, we'll be sharing uh, uh, this recording with you as well. Um, you know, if you have any questions as well for, for myself, Callum uh, or, or Nathan, please feel free to get in touch uh, directly with us just to say uh, thanks again and uh, take care.